Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Spiked is free. We have no paywall. You don't have to subscribe to read our articles or listen to our podcasts. We want as many people as possible to have access to our content, and so we are determined to keep Spiked free. And we're only able to do that thanks to the generosity of our readers and our listeners. Your donations mean we can carry on doing what we're doing and provide an essential alternative voice on the big issues of the day. This is particularly important during the COVID crisis, in which Spiked has provided the space for lockdown sceptics, dissenting experts and others to say things that have become unsayable elsewhere. So thank you to everyone who donates to Spiked. If you don't yet donate, but you would like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are always hugely appreciated but even better are regular monthly donations. Even £5 a month, less than the cost of a copy of The Guardian and a cappuccino, can make a huge difference to our work. So, to help keep Spiked free and thriving, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Now, on with the show. It's the sort of acceleration of ideas and patterns of life that were already set before COVID, but they've gone into hyperdrive. Increasingly, the type of people who are essential workers, meaning working class people, are divided by physical partitions from the elite. But that was already happening. The elite were already socially distancing. They live in their own core metropolitan areas. They don't go out to those suburbs where the essential worker types live. So many of the things we call the new normal were just part of the old normal that have taken on a kind of extreme, obvious manifestation. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Saurabh Armory. Saurabh is a columnist, editor and author. He is the op-ed editor of the New York Post, a contributing editor to the Catholic Herald and a writer for First Things. He was previously a columnist and editor at the Wall Street Journal. Saurabh is author of The New Philistines, a book on how identity politics has polluted and corrupted the arts, and also from Fire by Water, in which he wrote of his conversion to Roman Catholicism. Saurabh's next book, published in 2021, is The Unbroken Thread, Rediscovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Saurabh, the, f- the first thing I want to ask you about is a global controversy, really, that you and your newspaper, The New York Post, were involved in, which is, of course, the laptop from hell, as Trump calls it, and the report in The New York Post about possible findings on a laptop relating to Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and Joe Biden's relationship with Ukraine. And For me and for you and for many, many other people, the most shocking part of this story was the response of big tech, the response of Silicon Valley, who enacted probably the most direct form of censorship they've ever enacted in the, in terms of preventing people directly from sharing this story on the basis that it was false or the basis that it hadn't been checked out or on the basis that it had been obtained from hacked materials. Can you just tell us what it was like when you had that experience of not being able to share one of the stories from your own newspaper and what you think that tells us about the role big tech is playing at the moment? So I should start by saying that I had nothing to do with the reporting or editing of the story. Mm -hmm. I run the opinion columns. It's on the comment editor and therefore don't have anything to do with our news side. Reporting, because uh, as you know, in American newspapers, comment and news are often walled off from each other. So 
when I found out that we had this story was when it went online, which was at five in the morning that I'm going to say Thursday. And then at 10 o'clock, I noticed that a gentleman by the name of Andy Stone, who works in the communications department of Facebook, put up a tweet. So to be clear, he works for Facebook, but he tweeted something saying, I have to paraphrase slightly, but you know, I won't share that horrible New York Post story. But what I will tell you is that it needs to be fact-checked. And in the meanwhile, we have taken steps to reduce circulation on the story. Now, keep in mind as a side note that Andy Stone, before joining Facebook, as he says in his own Twitter biography, before joining Facebook, he served as a staffer for a Democratic senator, Barbara Boxer of California, for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and other Democratic organs. So what shocked all of us, and this was the first censorship step we heard about, was the blatantness of it, the brazenness of it, that you have someone who is part of the Democratic establishment, a former Democratic staffer, now has his hands, as it were, on the levers of internet power. As you know, Brendan, free speech lives or dies now on these platforms. Yeah. The fact that they're privately owned is, is a kind of secondary tertiary issues. So he's saying, I have this power and I'm going to pull this lever to silence the story. And then about an hour afterward, I tried to share the story on my Twitter account and it wouldn't let me. It said this story, you know, is, is blocked. You know, I can't remember the exact phrasing. You can find it. It's been deeply reported now everywhere and you can find it on my Twitter account. So that made me tweet something that went like insanely viral. Mm. Uh, I just said, I, an editor at the New York Post, and I think I mentioned the newspaper founded by Alexander Hamilton, which it was. So for British listeners who may not know, you know, the New York Post is not some shady little website. Yeah. It's the country's oldest continuously published newspaper, and it was founded by Alexander Hamilton. So I said, I, an editor at the newspaper founded by Alexander Hamilton, can't find this bombshell story that we've reported. And so, and that, you know, tens of thousands of people liked and retweeted that. So that happened. And the chilling part of it was that not only could you not share the story on your public feed, but Twitter blocked users from sending it in direct private messages as well. So I just thought this is the most truly chilling, sinister. And now I can get into how unjust it all is if you, if we want to. But the main takeaway is just their power to do this is just unbelievably, again, sinister, chilling and the brazenness with which they do it. And to this day, we, the New York Post, are locked out of our Twitter account. As far as I, I checked last, I think it was October 14th when we last tweeted a story because Twitter says that this was hacked material. Now, it wasn't. It's material recovered from a laptop, purportedly seemingly belonging to Hunter. And the director of national intelligence has clarified that this material had nothing to do with Russian disinformation. The FBI and the Justice Department have also said these are not exactly institutions friendly to President Trump, as you again, as you know. Mm-hmm. But they've clarified that it has nothing to do with Russian disinformation. So Twitter, in response to our protest, changed its policy and said, okay, only hackers will be barred from posting hacked materials. Now, again, we insist that this is not hacked material, but setting that aside. But it insists that the rule won't apply retroactively and they won't allow us to recover our Twitter account with nearly 2 million followers unless we delete six tweets in which we promoted those stories. Stories that have since been, believe it or not, have been amply corroborated. In other words, unlike any number of these sort of quote-unquote Russian collusion stories, including Brexit collusion, if you'll remember, Mm. that were based on anonymous sources and that collapsed under factual scrutiny, this story has stood up. Neither Hunter nor Mr. Biden has said that the material is inauthentic. Neither of them has denied ownership or provenance of the laptop. So it really is a sort of deeply corroborated, solidly reported story. And yet we are not allowed to tweet until we delete our tweets promoting it. It is simply staggering. And I'm sure most people, I hope, would agree. It is absolutely staggering that in the run-up to an election, uh, a publication like the New York Post would be prevented from tweeting until it does what Silicon Valley is demanding that it does. I think that is such an extraordinary snapshot of the alarming power and partisan influence that these platforms have now. And I think one point you made, which was a very good one, is 
There have been so many stories about Trump that have either been discovered in questionable ways or have contained highly questionable information or, or things that have just proven to be factually wrong. And Twitter and Facebook did not take similar action against those kinds of stories. So would you say that what we're witnessing here is just simple partisan authoritarianism by corporations to try to prevent the calling into question of one side in the presidential election? I think there are a number of factors in play. One is that at the highest levels, these two firms, and I'm talking about Mike, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and Jack Dorsey at Twitter, they're both a kind of techno-libertarian. But as their companies have grown, as one Facebook insider who actually did a, I've done two stories now based on leaks and disclosures, which we can get into, he offered me. But he said, you know, that the rank and file of these firms, all the sort of young programmers are ultra-woke white millennials and Gen Xers. And these individuals can have enormous power over a firm like Facebook because they're the, they're the programmers, the testers, the computer scientists that, you know, on a day-to-day basis oversee essentially our public square. And, you know, th- this Facebook insider says, look, mo- most of these employees want Trump to lose. They think all sort of national conservatism or populism is illegitimate. And so if if they can rig the platforms against him, they will. Another factor, I think, is the fact that bizarrely, in 2016, the loss of Hillary Clinton was blamed on, especially Facebook, the fact that it was this free-flowing place where people could post things and it had been you know, abused by Russian intelligence services to post this information. And that's why she lost. Now, this is nonsense, right? It is true that Russian, you know, intelligence in their own crude way posted some stupid boomer memes that were anti, you know, that showed Hillary with Satan and and Trump like high-fiving Jesus Christ, right? Mm. But like, that's not why Hillary lost. Hillary lost because she was an unattractive candidate and voters on both sides of the Atlantic were sick of the sort of neoliberal, neoconservative, whatever consensus we live under or used to live under. And it wasn't working for them. But for a narrow but influential band of American thinkers, policymakers, pundits, it was easier to say that Facebook did it rather than face the fact that for vast swaths of of working middle class people, where it matters in American elections like Wisconsin and Michigan and, and Pennsylvania, the old consensus they were pushing wasn't working. It left them jobless, unhealthy, and unhappy. And so they tried their luck with a crazy, you know, New York mogul named Donald Trump, and he became president. But the firms, the tech firms were so burned by those allegations that I think they're now hyper vigilant to not be blamed if Trump wins again. As you will be aware, we had a very similar experience in the UK in relation to Brexit, which has been crazily blamed on Facebook and other social media outlets, as well as, you know, apparently shady organizations like Cambridge Analytica and Russian bots, none of which stacks up at all. But it is it speaks to that inability of the old technocratic liberal establishment to understand or accept why people turned against it and why people chose a different political path. But in relation to the recent experience of the New York Post versus Twitter, I wanted to just broaden that out a little bit because one of the key things that you've been writing about in recent times is the notion of the the necessity of conservatives to get woke, by which I, I think you mean that conservatives have got to start taking the culture wars more seriously. They've got to understand that huge numbers of institutions, both political and corporate, are on the side of the woke left or the liberal elite or however we might want to describe them, and that conservatives have got to get real about this situation and become more active. Could you just describe what you mean by woke conservative and why you think it's important that conservatives go down that road? Yeah, I guess I'm culturally appropriating the term woke <laughs> from its uh, origins in on the left. But basically what I mean by woke conservatives are conservatives who are aware finally that frankly most or many of the major institutions of of the american establishment are not with them are not with our people you know they are beholden to this kind of 
woke lefty ideology that also is strangely, as I argue, is strangely corporate friendly. In other words, corporations have no problem not only promoting it, but accommodating all their demands. So when you see Disney and Brooks Brothers and the trustees of the Ivy League universities and Amazon and so on and so forth all line up behind the most insane like gender nonsense and take positions on immigration and things that normally I think a kind of American mindset is like business is business, you know, it's not political, but it, it is both because they're staffed by this kind of new youngish elite that has been marinated in this kind of ideology in college and sincerely believes it. But also I think, I think for deeper reasons, it is in their benefit to have a world, you know, that's generally borderless where capital labor and services move freely, that works really well for Jeff Bezos. So they, they can kind of disguise all of their kind of corporate nastiness behind this wokeness. Christopher Caldwell put it really well in an essay for City Journal in 2017. And it was this, that we've done nothing for the poor and the working class. But now, you know, the, you know, the latest addition to the boardroom is a trans disabled woman, you know. So, sorry, I'm, I'm digressing, but a woke conservative is someone who just recognizes this reality that corporations aren't with you, the universities aren't with us, and we might as well recognize these realities and, and, and notice that, you know, our main constituency are working class people, middle class people, and we should deliver for them in the form of obviously fighting these institutions, standing up for a kind of cultural sanity, for healthcare, for better healthcare, for better wages for the working class. So that's what I mean by it's to recognize that everything has realigned and true conservatism has to be anti-corporate now. And that's what I mean by woke conservative. To, and, and to stop, if I may just add one more thing, in the US, it's a real obsession of conservatives. So when something like this big tech censorship happens, they're obsessed with formal arguments. So it's like, oh my goodness, it's terrible. But you know, Facebook is privately owned, so we can't do anything. It's like, no, well, yeah, no, <laughs> we have to do something about it because, yes, I still have my freedom of speech if I, as a private citizen, go out to a street corner in Manhattan and bang a drum and say, Hunter Biden is corrupt. But that, first of all, not many people will hear me. And second of all, I look like a nutter. <laughs> so the only place where freedom of speech actually plays out is on these platforms. And they're acting politically, and therefore they should be subject to some greater political accountability. R regardless of what free market libertarians have to say about it, they're increasingly irrelevant to the right. I often think that free market libertarians are very ill-equipped for contemporary censorship, and very ill-equipped for tackling or arguing against contemporary censorship, because I think they have a tendency to fetishize private property rights, which means that when Facebook and Twitter behave in explicitly political ways and increasingly authoritarian ways, they lack the arguments for dealing with that. And instead, they fall back on the hackneyed, rather boring argument, you know, these are private companies, they can do whatever they want, which is, I think, an incredibly insufficient response to a very new form of censure. But I think the, the point you make about conservatives needing to confront corporations, I think this is really interesting, because one of the things that's very striking about Donald Trump, and people can think whatever they like about Donald Trump, but one thing that I think is undeniable is that he has proven himself willing to confront corporations, particularly the social media oligarchies. He's also found himself in conflict with traditional political institutions or the even the security apparatus in the US. And it often strikes me that Trump comes off sometimes as more rebellious than the supposedly rebellious left in the sense that he is confronting these well-established organizations. And is your argument that the conservative right needs to be a little bit more like Trump in, in terms of being willing to recognize the reality of our times and be more confrontational in relation to these institutions that are against your values and your ideas? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I think if I were to say about what Trump's shortcoming is, that it's he rose as a populist on and, and he rose to power on a wave of populist discontent with the pre-Trump consensus. Mm -hmm. You know, I famously called it the dead consensus, but it lives on like a zombie. And so it, it, maybe it wasn't dead and maybe we shouldn't call it that. But at any rate, 
he hasn't delivered nearly as much as I would have hoped mm. on this stuff. I mean, I, I, we could get into the policy weeds of American politics, but like, you know, price transparency for healthcare, I think he's done some things on that, pharmaceuticals. But I don't know. My point is that, you know, conservatives should become, yes, more confrontational, but, but not confrontational for confrontationalness's sake. Yeah but rather because the old consensus wasn't really serving the common good of the American people. It, a narrow band of people, of young, educated technocrats, people who own capital, who, who serve as capital in, as the professional managerial class, was doing really well. But, you know, vast swaths of, of, of American society, of all races, black and, and white, were being left behind and drug-addicted, declining life expectancy, which is shocking for a an industrialized advanced society. And so we need to turn these things around. And first of all, I mean, I look, I'll be honest, I hope Trump wins. But even if he doesn't, I see other conservatives who are in the works who understand this stuff, but are more in a way are more sophisticated, articulate advocates for it. People like Senator Josh Hawley, increasingly Senator Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio in various ways. These are the people who are picking up I think people may not embrace this term, but in our American political discussion are increasingly they're described as post-liberal conservatives. And there's something, uh, uh, there, there are analogs in Britain, I would argue, you know, Philip Blonde, Nick Timothy, and a few others who are like thinking of the states that, you know, the, the goal of society is not to maximize individual rights, but the goal of a political community is to secure the common good, that it's a liberal aberration of the past maybe 300 years that has turned society into just these atomized individuals always in conflict and each seeking to maximize their own autonomous good. Mm. And let's try to rebalance things at least a little bit in favor of the working class, in favor of the weak and vulnerable. I see conservatives making these types of arguments increasingly, whereas the left isn't. It's just utterly at peace in some ways with the corporate order, but we wants to sort of rejigger representation. So it's like... Amazon can do whatever it can pay its workers so little, offer them so few breaks that they have to urinate in in water bottles instead of having a chance to go to the bathroom like a decent human being should be allowed to. He can do all that, but you know, you know, as I said, like, oh, but the new corporate board is like half transgender, you know, that sort of stuff. Hi, this is Andrew Doyle, writer, comedian, and columnist for Spiked. If you're enjoying this episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show, then you really need to check out my podcast, Culture Wars. In this show, we try to get to the bottom of the culture wars by going beyond the headlines, beyond all the partisan bickering, while poking a bit of fun at all the insanity along the way. My latest guests are Katie Herzog and Jesse Single. They're both brilliant journalists, and together they co-host Blocked and Reported, which is a podcast that they describe as being all about internet bullshit. They do a fantastic job of dissecting and talking through the many flare-ups and pylons that happen online and in the media every day. In our conversation, we talk about their own experiences with cancel culture, the rise of critical race theory, and what the US election means for the culture wars. So, if that sounds like your cup of tea, then make sure you check out Culture Wars with me, Andrew Doyle. Now back to The Brendan O'Neill Show. I want to come back to the question of the autonomy versus the common good, because I think on that issue, we might have some disagreements. But firstly, just sticking with the realignment that's taking place in politics, which I think is happening, as you say, on both sides of the Atlantic. I think it is incredibly interesting and quite enlivening. One of my favorite pieces that you've written this year was in relation to the extraordinary meltdown, the transatlantic meltdown we saw after the killing of the, the brutal killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter uprising, which was particularly pronounced in the US, but there were, were also explosions of it in the UK as well. And you argued that this was not really a revolution at all, but it was more like the revenge of the old establishment or a counter-revolution of the neoliberal elites who come from academia, the corporate world, the expert cliques, and so on. And it was really those sections of society pushing back in this rather strange street-fighting fashion against the events of the past four or five years, primarily against Trump, against Brexit, against that populist moment. So could you just describe for us, because that would be a very counter-intuitive 
description, certainly to many people who took part in these protests. So can you just describe to us how you view that extraordinary moment that we saw recently where society in America almost collapsed and there were even protests in the UK in relation to Black Lives Matter? I find it very amusing that there are Black Lives protests in Britain or in Norway. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a friend of mine likes to joke that that's the clearest sign that America is an empire in the sense that the ferment that riles up the imperial center, let's say New York or Washington, also spreads to the periphery so that (laughs) Norwegians are (laughs) really fired up about killings in Missouri, you know. (laughs) And Douglas Murray, you know, he wrote a piece for me about how he was saying like, you know, I like a lot of things about America, but I wish you guys wouldn't export wokeness because people are protesting in, in, you know, Trafalgar Square, (laughs) saying like, hands up, don't shoot to police officers that don't have guns. (laughs) Who's going to shoot you? To to get a more more serious point, yeah, I do think that the events of 2015-16 were just an unbearable system shock to the masters and mistresses of liberal order. So you had Brexit, then you had the election of Donald Trump, and then a wave of populist nationalist governments coming to power from Poland to Hungary to Brazil later. And in each of these places, you see that, that the liberal order one way or another responded by seeking to undermine the ballot box outcome through procedural means. So for example, in Britain, every trick in the book was played to to delay, to defer, to have a second referendum, you know, to go after some Pisher, 23-year-old, poor, I don't know, Brexit campaigner who hadn't checked the box on his finance form, you know, and he had to pay 23,000 pounds. Um, I think he got overturned. What's his name? Dar- is it Grimes? Darren Grimes. Darren Grimes, yeah. So you, you saw the establishment flex its considerable muscle, right, in response to try to hinder the ballot box outcome from actually being realized. In the United States, that took the form of almost an immediate resistance that was launched within the security apparatus. In other words, we now know that all this collusion stuff, first of all, that there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. That's just for any of your listeners who may still think, I mean, Britons who may still think that there was some collusion between Russia and Trump. The Mueller report, to be clear, its findings is that there was never any collusion between Trump and the Kremlin. And yet, This was the theory that fired up American politics for three years, in many ways paralyzed the Trump administration because it was spending so much time trying to defend its own legitimacy. And then almost immediately, it was an impeachment push based on his phone call to Ukraine Mm. to, you know, find dirt on Joe Biden, which as it happened, now we know there was good reason there was actual (laughs) dirt. So all of those efforts failed, like Trump survived all of them his taxes, his relationship with a porn star, this, that, everything was trotted out. And if you follow Twitter, American political Twitter, it was one thing every day where liberals would say, they would actually put up pictures of cannons. There'd be like a cannon going off and it'd say, boom, this is it. Trump is now (laughs) cornered. He's destroyed and he just survived it all. So I really think then the next thing that, that happened was a tacit permission on the part of Democratic governors and blue state governors and and mayors to allow rioting. In other words, it wasn't like the establishment even looked away from the rioting. It encouraged the rioting in these cities. And so I frame that as the, the rioting that happened over the summer. Yeah, partly it's because people were locked down. And finally, there was like one legitimate cause that allowed you to go outside because Black Lives Matter is sort of our civic religion. And so that's the one thing they couldn't bar. I'm not saying this was a conspiracy. It's more like a consensus to say, see, we have to show how unhappy everyone with Trump is by not confronting people like bashing in stores and, and random violence and calling that racial justice. But my point is that the uprising, quote unquote, over the summer, although it has the feel of a leftist uprising with Marxist-ish rhetoric, it is, in fact, to my mind, the latest attempt by the establishment to try to undo the outcome of 2016. When I read your piece, it made so much sense to me and it allowed me to understand those events of the past few months much more clearly because the way I came to understand what had happened is 
this was essentially a, a militant expression of the various underhand methods that had been pursued over the past three or four years, as as you described them. Exactly. In the, you know, in the in the US, you had the various ridiculous impeachments and the, the mad Russia obsession. And in the UK, we had very similar things in relation to Brexit, which also survived against all the odds in in the most extraordinary fashion. It survived all these attacks. When I read your piece and a, a few other interesting pieces too, I came to understand that street fighting moment, not as any form of genuine counterculture movement or, or certainly not Marxist rebellion or, or, or anything like that, but rather as almost an unwittingly green-lighted militant expression of, of the old establishment's fury with the fact that it had been rejected by the people. And one thing that I wanted to touch on with you in relation to that is the question of how do we understand an establishment that has lost its way so much that it is willing either to overthrow very, very large democratic votes. So for example, the vote for Brexit is the largest vote in the history of the United Kingdom. The vote for Trump, as as we are continually told, he didn't win the popular vote, but he won a very substantial number of votes and he won the Electoral College. How can we understand an old establishment that is willing to attack democracy and also to give an implicit nod of approval to some really destructive behavior on the streets. Does that suggest that this is an establishment that is out of control or desperate to regain power or so convinced that it has the right to rule and that it is clever enough to rule the rest of us that it will take any measure necessary to get back into the corridors of power? I think that above all, and this is what scares me the most, is that it's an elite that has become self-aware as an elite in a way that it may not have been pre-2015. Let me put it this way. We do have two parties nominally in the United States, but really they were just kind of one with marginal disagreements over, you know, marginal tax rates or some foreign policy disagreements that are legitimate, you know, should we intervene here or there. But that largely they're within one framework, one elite. And then suddenly you had a genuine anti-elite counterpole appear on the political scene. And suddenly, you know, someone like Bill Crystal recognized how much he shares with Obama administration types, right? <laughs> Bill Crystal, as you know, is the founder of the, the Weekly Standard, great hawkish champion of various disastrous wars in the Middle East. And as someone who in 2008 was promoting um, Sarah Palin is almost shocking. But by 2015, 16, 17, someone like him recognize that he shares more with the people who sit on the board of, you know, these various liberal advocacy groups in Washington or whatever you have, than he does with this new rebellious conservative base. And so what worries me and makes me think that those of us who think that the old order was in fact problematic and should have been overthrown and that this new type of conservatism is both morally right and has political legitimacy. What worries me is that we are in for a very long haul because, you know, elites who recognize, yes, we form an elite and yes, we have political enemies and yes, we have an enormous amount of money and technological prowess and media influence. And we can do a lot with that. It just means that people like me, we may be under the impression that it was as easy as that to overthrow an establishment. I remember in 2018, 19, I did have a kind of overconfidence. I'll be honest. This is, I'm disclosing all this for the first time. <laughs> we published a statement at First Things Magazine called Against the Dead Consensus. And it was mostly Roman Catholic writers and intellectuals and professors who, for different reasons, we had all come to agree that we think that the old consensus wasn't working and we need a new conservatism that serves working class people. And again, as I mentioned, the title itself, Against the Dead Consensus, proved to be <laughs> a little premature because the zombie consensus can have an enormous amount of power. And so you saw over the year or so that followed from the signing of that statement, how the institutions of establishment conservatism uh, circled the wagons against us and sort of said, no, 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 you guys are, nah, this is not, nah, we don't like this stuff. You know, bring back Jeb. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I think the first lesson from all of this is that zombies can stagger on for a very long time, as as we should have learned from horror films over the years. And I think we've certainly learned that from the zombie consensus that refuses to go away, which, if anything, has been rather emboldened by the COVID crisis and the Black Lives Matter uprising, which I want to I want to ask you about the COVID impact in a moment. But what you've just said is actually a really important insight, which is the the post-2016 self-consciousness of the elite and the way in which when they were confronted with a genuine challenge, not simply to a particular party, but to the means through which countries are run. So we had that in the UK, you know, the vote for Brexit. Most of the time, people in Britain choose between one of the two parties. And sometimes the parties are very similar. Sometimes they're a bit different, but that's basically the only choice we had. Whereas in 2016, we chose something which called into question the entire way in which the UK had been governed since the 1970s. And in relation to the election of Trump in the US, that was quite clearly a calling into question of the dead consensus, the zombie consensus, or what you have referred to as as depoliticized politics, technocracy, managerialism, it really was calling into question the means through which the establishment established its authority over society. And I think in that kind of moment, it seems pretty important that the elite becomes aware of itself as an elite precisely because it's under attack. I wanted to ask you, you were talking earlier about some of your disappointments with Trump, and he hasn't done what you would like him to have done. Maybe this is too too much of a big question to answer, but what needs to be done to genuinely challenge and possibly dislodge this increasingly self-conscious elite, which is also increasingly determined to retain its power and its means of rule over society? As a first matter, we need to be able to win elections. And if they're going to block stories from America's oldest continuously published newspaper three weeks before an election, a story that's very solidly corroborated, then we can't even begin to have a debate in which we can appeal to people to vote for us. So that means to me, as a first matter, we need to reform I won't go into the nitty gritty because it's technical and boring to a foreign audience. But anyway, the law that allows these big tech firms to act like publishers and yet not have any of the liabilities of a, of a publisher. Okay, I will go into very briefly. In the 1990s, Congress enacted a law called the Communications Decency Act. And among the things that were Im- embedded in this law was something called Section 230. What Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act does is it allows platforms like Facebook and Twitter, it recognizes them essentially as bulletin boards, meaning they're not responsible for the things that you say on them. If you or I post libelous material on Twitter or defamatory material, the victim of our alleged defamation or libel cannot sue Twitter for it, right? Whereas if if you publish libel on Spiked Online or if I publish libel on the New York Post, the victim can sue the New York Post. And the Communication Decency Act said, no, 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 you guys are, your platforms, your bulletin boards, you're not um, publishers. So you're exempt from publisher liabilities. And we'll still allow you to edit things. Uh, We will allow you to block prurient content like pornography or what have you. So even as you can block things, we will treat you as not a publisher, but as a bulletin board. So that law, at least as interpreted, has worked out well for these firms because they increasingly have a worldview that they promote. If you go to your Twitter account, often you'll see it promotes certain stories and invariably it's like anti-Israel, anti-Trump, anti-Brexit, pushing like sort of the latest trans ideology nonsense. So they have a worldview that they promote. And as we saw most explicitly with this New York Post episode, they're willing to censor things. So the law needs to either be reinterpreted or or reformed so that we have a level playing field. Mm. Okay, you know, Jack Dorsey, you want to act like a publisher, fine, but then you have to face a publisher's liabilities. So Section 230 reform seems to me one important way that we can begin to push back. Another is to tax the endowments of these largest universities that are essentially training grounds for the elite where they marinate young minds in the latest critical theory nonsense. And yet they're massive, you know, endowments that are bigger than the combined GDP of several African countries are not taxable. Why? The Harvard can pay 
it'll be okay. Harvard is not some old man at a street corner <laughs> with a metal cup, you know, begging for change. And I do think American conservatives need to get behind a decent healthcare system. It's one of the greatest sources of insecurity in American life, where if you get sick, even if you have insurance, Brendan, you may still end up owing like thousands of dollars. Mm. So those are some of the economic things. Conservatives should be for better, decent wages, decent health care, but also to attack the institutions of the other side just the same way that they attack ours. I mean, the liberals understand what culture war means. It means they, they frame Brendan O'Neill as whatever, mm. you know, a Trumpian, Brexiteering, you know. And for that reason, the institutions that support Brendan O'Neill or Sarab Amari should be destroyed. Yeah. That's how they think. And conservatives don't do that. It's like, oh, well, it's a free, free market of ideas, blah, blah, blah. And that's how Twitter gets to the point where it's this unaccountable, this brazen, this censorious. I think that's a really important point. It strikes me that the woke left and the woke left is not simply some loud mouths on Twitter. It is backed up, as as you know, and as you've described, by corporate power, by political power, by academic power as well. I feel it has a very keen understanding of the conflict that it is engaged in. And, you know, when it pushes particular ideas or when it tries to censor particular criticisms, it knows pretty well what it's doing. It is is trying to establish an ideological orthodoxy or, or an acceptable way of thinking and woe betide anyone who contradicts that. Whereas I think you're right, some conservatives have been a bit too lily-livered in response to this or have simply not known how to respond or how to take this on. But one thing, one thing I wanted to ask you in relation to this, I, I think there is a profound contradiction in American and British society at the moment. And I think it's really expressed quite well in the figure of Boris Johnson or, or Boris Johnson's government, where on the one hand, we have a public and, you know, often largely a working class who are pretty exhausted with the old politics, pretty tired of the old politics, don't sign up to all the woke nonsense, really don't like managerial style technocratic politics and are looking for change. So we have that as the kind of the popular expression at the ballot box in the US and the UK over the past few years. But we have an establishment, particularly in, in Britain, which is unwilling to embody that or seems wary of it and seems incapable of giving it an expression. I just wonder, do you think there will come a breaking point between this popular desire for a move away from depoliticized politics and this rather narrow self-guarding elite which wants to cling on to power as much as possible. If the election of Trump in the most powerful country on earth didn't prove to be the breaking point that we might have expected, how do you think that breaking point might come about? That's a really good question. And it's the one where I, the first one where I really don't have a, an immediate answer mm. that isn't a terrible black pill, which is, <laughs> you know, it could be that the establishment just wins. I personally look at the world that they're constructing as a kind of dystopia, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are jokes and memes on Twitter, but there's some truth to them. You know, it's like increasingly with COVID, they've weaponized. Look, I mean, I, I'm serious about COVID. I take necessary steps protect myself and my family and other people because I'm not, I'm not a sociopath. But, you know, you can see the embryonic stages of a new kind of social life that's like, collect your universal basic income, your food gets delivered by a drone to your pod, and get on Pornhub and fat. And don't, you know, don't socialize, don't date because you could spread the disease. Just fat and <laughs> masturbate. I, I know I, I sound jokey, but that's, you know, it's like, it's become this really creepy biopolitical control mechanism where political life means cities, right? A polis needs a city and that means it needs a people. And that means you and I getting together and seeking to build the common good together, but also contesting what the good is. All of that requires actual political community. And I just really worry about, you know, the lockdowns becoming a permanent feature of our lives, even after there's a vaccine, you know, you hear talk from people, really serious people saying, well, you know, why don't we just do masks forever? Yeah. Because we want to control the flu. You know, the regular flu was bad, you know, or why don't we just socially distance? You know, it's just so much better. It's like, no, that's inhuman. That's bizarre. <laughs> and so I really worry about 
how they might use this to really establish a kind of permanent boot on our face of this weird world on the, where on the one hand, all the rhetoric is about, you know, freedom and liberty and always overcoming some reactionary right. And on the other hand is deathly afraid, tightly controlled. And I see how the one can be the fulfillment of the other, by the way, but that's a different story. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I wanted to come on to COVID, actually, because I think you're absolutely right. And and to me, the mo- one of the most chilling phrases of our time is the new normal. And, and the new normal is exactly as you describe, which is everyone wearing masks, everyone keeping their distance, you know, pushing further with the atomization of society, the, the use of the internet and corporations to facilitate a society that is much more divided, which is much less like a city in the traditional sense. I think all of that is happening. And as you say, this is not a conspiracy theory. I don't think there are groups of people sitting down and plotting this out. But rather, I think what's happened with a COVID crisis is is that it's molded itself around pre-existing ideas, the pre-existing ideas of the safe space, protect yourself from other people, the pre-existing ideas of keep your distance, stay at home and watch porn rather than risking a relationship. I mean, these are ideas that have been percolating in our society for quite a long time. And I think COVID has had the consequence of exacerbating that stuff. And the way it strikes me is that I think there's been a double whammy assault on the populist moment this year. The first was the Black Lives Matter stuff and the the woke uprising, as we've talked about. And the second which will probably have a more long-term impact, has been the COVID impact and, and the use of that or the understanding of that as a means of pushing back against the populist moment. Not only pushing back, but to create a, almost a new hierarchy or caste system of who can exercise um, historic rights like assembly and speech. I mean, you saw it in the United States, just the most glaring way where you know, if you're an ultra-Orthodox Jewish family who wants to hold a funeral for a rabbi, no, 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 no. If you're a small business owner, you want to go to a protest, even if you stay in your own cars to protest. No, they were, they were too close. Then you have a massive, this happened, Black Trans Lives Rally in Brooklyn. Tens of thousands of people closely packed, many of them not wearing masks. The media framed them completely differently. I mean, I put up different headlines for different kinds of events. It's like Trump ralliers gather together, defying experts' warnings about virus. The other one, you know, Courageous activists uh, <laughs> descend on in Brooklyn, and you can see which which one is considered the civic religion. It's untouchable. Its liturgical rights have absolute freedom; must be made room for, despite experts' warning. And the other one, of course, should be suppressed. They're so openly pursuing a kind of biopolitical project. And as you said, I'm not suggesting any sort of conspiracy. It's the sort of acceleration of ideas and patterns of life that were already set before COVID, but they've gone into hyperdrive, right? Like increasingly the type of people who are essential workers, meaning working class people, are divided by physical partitions from the elite. But that was already happening. The elite were already socially distancing in the sense that they live in their own core metropolitan areas. They don't go out to those suburbs where the essential worker types live. So many of the things we call the new normal were just part of the old normal that have taken on a kind of extreme, obvious manifestation. Yeah. The elites were already social distancing. I think that is incredibly true and, and really important. And I think in in terms of the differential response to protests, depending on whether it was an acceptable cause or an unacceptable cause, there was something almost biblical about that, the idea that the plague would only really have an impact on you if you were a sinful person if, if you were an, you know if if you were an orthodox jew wanting to go to a funeral or have a social event or if you were i don't know a redneck american as they would be seen who wanted to protest against stay at home orders then the plague would hit you but if you were a 
decent, saintly person who wanted to protest for trans rights, you would be protected from it somehow, or or it simply didn't matter that you gathered in public because you, your decency was so extraordinarily high. The virus has its own intelligence. Yes. It, somehow science has found that if you're holding arm in arm and you, you chant the magic words, no justice, no peace, it will not attack you. <laughs> yeah. Then you're safe. Then you're safe. You said an important word there, which I just, which is something I wanted to ask you about, which was the word experts. And one of the things that worries me about the COVID moment is that I think it has become a means through which so-called expert authority, there's been an attempted re-establishment of that over society. Now, anyone who calls into question expert authority instantly runs the risk of being denounced as an idiot and anti-expertise and anti-enlightenment and anti-science and everything else. So I want to say that I am entirely in favor of expertise. If I fall ill, I go to a doctor. If my iPad breaks, I go to someone who understands iPads. Expertise is great. But I think one of the key issues with the depoliticized politics of recent years is that it had this undemocratic urge to elevate experts in politics so that their voices became not only important in relation to their niche areas of expertise, but in the broader determination of what was good for society. And, and do you think that almost the, the cult of experts was one of the key problems with the old order that existed pre-2016? It's just become so much more overt the way, by the way, counter-expertise is ruled out in a way that's completely contrary to the spirit of the scientific enterprise and scientific inquiry. If someone comes around and says, like, for example, Dr. Scott Atlas, who's a physician at Stanford University, was at Stanford University Medical School, the Hoover Institution, and is now one of the White House's chief COVID czars, so to speak. So he works for the Trump administration. And he tweeted some, raised some questions about the efficacy of masks long term. Didn't say don't wear masks, but he just raised some questions. And it was, he was citing, you know, peer reviewed literature. I mean, the guy's like a Stanford University medical expert. So he's not, again, it's not some schmo. And Twitter banned him. I don't know if you knew this. Twitter, Twitter locked his account. Crazy. So first of all, that, that, that is so contrary to the spirit of the expertise whose mantle these people claim. The more philosophical point that you raise, I think you're, you're absolutely right in the sense that science and technological expertise answer scientific and technical questions. And I would turn to no one else but scientists when it comes to these types of questions. They are questions, you call them questions of fact, Right. How does a black hole form? And do, do black holes radiate light or whatever? Absolutely. Go to the, go to the, I have no problem with the expert. But, but there are other types of questions to which science doesn't have an answer because they're not scientific questions. And yet they do have right or wrong answers. They just don't take scientific form. So, for example, how should we respond to a new virus in a way that where we don't debilitate jobs and social life and healthcare for especially the poor people of our uh, in our economy. Science can inform that. Science can tell you, well, okay, the virus spreads this and that way and so forth. But fundamentally, the question of you know how to respond overall that is a question of statesmanship, of politics, and it's in a way bigger than science. It, science feeds into it, but so do other concerns about your individual conscience, about our historic rights and liberties, about economic questions. And the political is its own genuine domain where it has, in fact, it's, you know, Aristotle tells us it's architectonic of everything else. It's politics that shapes every other human activity. And so it's, it has its own sacredness. It has its own domain. And to sort of depoliticize everything and say, well, what does Dr. Fauci think? Dr. Fauci is, is great. He's a physician. As it happens, he doesn't touch his mail. <laughs> I don't know if you heard this, but anyway, <laughs> I won't get into that. But the point is that he's a physician. He's a physician. He's, he, he's ultimately, he cannot make determinations about the common good of, of our political community. That's up, to, that's up to politicians. And so this fetishization, I think, is exactly the right word. And it's also discrediting of the scientific enterprise itself when they're so blatant about it, when, when counter-expertise then gets censored. Absolutely. And I think there's a necessarily anti-democratic component to a lot of this, because one of the clearest things from the hysterical response to Brexit, for example, and also the response to Trump, 
was just an explicit calling into question the idea that ordinary people are good at determining what the common good should be. I mean, that was completely called into question by various experts and political actors in the UK and the US. Just this extreme hostility to the notion that the woman who cleans Richard Branson's office ought to have the same right as Richard Branson to determine what happens to the governance of the country. Even though that is the basis on which politics has worked for a long time, that was explicitly called into question by this kind of cult of expertise. These headlines that drove me crazy during the where it's like, um, you know, Brexit will be devastating, anthropologists say. It's like, yeah. what? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, uh, you know, a, gr- a group of, uh, of of Cambridge anthropologists have, have you know, what? You know, <laughs> no, sure, listen to them, but the, as though it's so definitive, you know, oh, well, well the anthropologists have, okay, well then, all right. No, that's not how politics works. I remember five leading scientists made a statement about Brexit, which caused a bit of a fuss. And I did a TV discussion in which I said, I want to know what the five leading plumbers think. And, uh, and people thought, (laughs) people thought I was being facetious, but I was being really, really honest. For the last couple of questions, I want to touch on the issue of autonomy and uh, particularly what you have referred to as, as maximal autonomy. And I I know where you're coming from on this, but I think I may have some disagreements. So in your discussions with David French over the nature of conservatism, which was a very well followed and widely discussed exchange of ideas, you essentially accused him of being a little bit too polite, a bit too nice, not really geared up for the seriousness of, of the culture wars. And and you, you said that conservatives like him are too willing to nod along to the idea of autonomy. And, and one line that leapt out is you said that, you know, one of the problems with maximal autonomy is this idea that we must affirm people's sexual choices, affirm their transgression and their power to disfigure their natural bodies, their right to de- redefine what it means to be human, and so on. The question I wanted to ask you is, Is this not actually a caricature of autonomy? When we're talking about the transgender movement, for example, or hyper-identity politics, or the increasingly eccentric politics of sexual identity, I wonder if this is a caricature of autonomy in the sense that it's not really arguing for the freedom of the individual to live as he or she chooses, but actually is arguing for the validation of society and the the almost enforced recognition of society where we must affirm these people's identities, which could be seen as anti-autonomy and it could be seen as a kind of needy therapeutic urge rather than an urge for freedom. So I would say the one is the fulfillment of the other. And it's an argument that was first put on my radar by a Polish thinker named Richard Legutko. And he wrote a book called The Demon of Democracy. It has a provocative thesis, which is that although they were seemingly at war during the Cold War. Marxism and liberalism are ultimately twin children of the Enlightenment and based on the idea that more or less that human beings are good and self-defining and therefore the, you know, the autonomous choices that they make should be maximized now. And you know, ultimately the goal of society is to transcend, to break all the barriers natural and traditional that used to constrain human behavior. You're, you're born in a society, you know, for, for the religious, obviously, there's a kind of component of, you know, who you are as a created being has limits that you're called to transcend yourself, not just express yourself, but also you're bound by disciplinary mores of society, of community, of, of church, of this, that. And both children of the Enlightenment, liberalism, and the kind of more historicist Marxist strand want to see the, the, the ultimate goal of society as breaking all of those so that the sort of liber- truly liberated man or woman can emerge. And in the case of communism, it's sort of obvious how that idea, its fulfillment ends up being the destruction of liberty, of true liberty, right? Because in order to really break all class structures and hierarchies and all differences between people, you actually end up having to break human beings, you know, in the gulag, in the killing field, in the great leap forward, what have you. 
in the case of liberalism, the process by which I think the human being ends up becoming less free in this quest for unlimited freedom is a lot more diffuse, but you see it anyway. So in order for me to feel fully validated in my autonomous choice to, to become a woman, to change my sex against all we know about you know, how men and women are different at the sort of chromosomal level, in order for me to feel fully free and fully myself, you have to recognize me as such. Mm. It's not enough that I just be allowed to have a transgender surgery. You have to say that I was always Sabrina. I was never Sorab. That's my dead name. I was always Sabrina. So that's one form of it. Or you see it in the thing we talked about today, right? Like the big tech, its power rests on what libertarian type conservatives, essentially liberal conservatives, have promoted all along. Free enterprise in every dimension, in every realm, just freedom, freedom, freedom. But it ends up empowering a hyper-powerful elite that can not only censor, but shape how you and what you get to think. I would argue the freedom at the level of the bodily, the absolute freedom of the bodily ends up destroying the freedom of the unborn child in, in abortion regimes. So I guess what I would say is every society will, some orthodoxy or other will reign. And the orthodoxy that has resulted from this quest for maximal autonomy we now see 300, 400 years later, its fulfillment in the kind of society we talked about. Do we, do we feel free? Does the West feel free? I actually agree with much of that. And particularly that question, does the West feel free? And, and it does not feel free. And I think my final question I wanted to put to you, just following on from that, is to what extent do you think the 2016 revolts and the, the populist moment was was actually an effort to re-establish constraints or to re-establish boundaries. Because I think one of the most problematic things that strikes people about the pre-2016 order was its erasure of boundaries, its erasure of borders. In Europe in particular, we were beholden to a post-borders ideology, the idea that capital and labor and everything else should be able to move freely for the benefit either of the capitalist elites or the kind of woke left. The boundary between male and female has been erased, between mother and father. It's increasingly difficult even to use phrases like that. The boundary between adult and child, the boundary between past and present, so that we're constantly told that the past has this direct impact on the present and weighs upon all of us all the time. So would you go so far as to argue that there are a huge number of people out there who would actually quite like to re-establish constraints, re-establish boundaries, particularly national ones, not because they are urbanists, as, as you yourself have been described, but because they actually like a sense of order and a sense of the idea that society ought to make sense and that the difference between things can be quite important. I mean, the most obvious case in which I think uh, people are clamoring for the return of limits is through what you just mentioned, borders. It doesn't mean they're all nasty nationalists that, you know, hate the other, so to speak. But just in the sense that they say, look, we, you know, we have this political community and its limits suffice for me. The kind of liberal cosmopolitan worldview, your loyalty are to two people. One is to yourself as this autonomous individual. You're a consultant at McKinsey. You have such mobility that you can be in London in the morning, then go take a lunch in Paris, then come back in the early evening, and you're on your laptop and your phone and wheeling and dealing. And so your loyalty is just for yourself, and you help reorder the world so that you can just maximize your ability to party in Singapore over the weekend and then come back and blah, blah, blah. That's one of your level of loyalty. And then the other your attachment to is to humanity at large. Right, it's like all of mankind, global governance structures. Why do we have? Why do we have families? Why do we have local communities? Why do we have these intervening realities when we can just get past all of them? And both of those are in some ways incongruous for the normal person. The the individual is too small. I am a human being. I'm that means I'm a social animal. I like community. I like my little local pub. I like my. And the other one is too big. You know, like humanity is large. I, I can't feel attachment to. I mean, I can feel sympathy. I'm not suggesting like you're, but, but I can't, it's too much for me to be like, to think of a, of a I don't know, a, a Malaysian guy as someone who is 
in my immediate political enterprise. It's too big. The world at large is too big. So the nation is like this kind of convenient middle ground between the two that's worked. And people are seeking to reassert it as a limit. A lot of people are tired of a world in which you're supposed to be an entrepreneur of yourself, which is a phrase you hear all the time. So it turned out people like having jobs that may not have so much mobility or whatever, but you work nine to five and you were sort of secure. Whereas with the gig economy, it's like, well, just be an entrepreneur. Yeah, start, go drive an Uber, blah, 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 blah. It's like, but there's no security to any of it. There's this sort of restlessness to it. Again, it, it all is nice. It works for the people for whom it works well economically, but it doesn't for a lot of other people. So there is another demand for limits. Basically, I'm agreeing with everything you said. Order, stability, these are human needs too. Not just dynamism, not just explosive markets, not just wheeling and dealing, but just, you know, having a settled life where you wake up, you have a wife or you have a husband and you raise children in a stable environment and everything isn't so dynamic and awesome. That's a human need too. <laughs> Sora, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.